This episode is brought to you by PayPal's Small Business Bootcamp Series. Sometimes when you're busier, you actually don't get in the way of yourself quite so much and you can achieve way more if you, you know, sideline the self-doubt and just, you know, focus on getting shit done. You have to kind of always be in touch with your purpose and your core in order to still get the joy out of it. If you're not going to sell yourself then who the hell is? So it's your responsibility to do that. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. The fact that this chat came in at an hour and a half and we'd already been chatting for more than half an hour before that confirms just how much I enjoy Grace Brennan's company and what a great conversationalist she is. It's not just her fascinating and unique story either, although I did love labouring over all the seemingly unlikely chapters that led to the one I met her in, but just her enthusiasm for asking questions as much as answering them and learning everything she can about the world around her. I can't entirely recall which parts were on air or off air, but I know we veered well beyond the scope of a normal episode to just share opinions and curiosity about aspects of the world. She's one of those people I've only chatted to maybe a handful of times now after our PayPal bootcamp session a few weeks ago, but who I would love to spend more time with. You may know Grace as the woman behind Buy From The Bush, the movement and now marketplace encouraging consumers in city areas to do some of their shopping in the bush to help support small rural businesses. Just six weeks after launching the movement, Movement as a hashtag, spurred by the devastating effects of drought on entire communities in the outback, Grace generated a 660% increase for rural business owners, and just four months later, that became $5 million in revenue. Australia Post even noted a 40% increase in parcel postage in regional areas where they were selling out of parcels to send, and the business has continued to explode, now becoming a full buy-from-the-bush marketplace and booming community supporting rural business owners. And just recently, Grace announced a very exciting new element to the business, a pitching initiative for those outback businesses in partnership with PayPal called Big Break, where rural business owners can pitch to win $30,000 and more in prizes towards their businesses. I know she is an absolute inspiration and incredible human being championing our outback businesses where they need it most. What I loved as always was not only hearing how Grace catapulted into her yay, but how unexpected that was and how long and winding her journey was to get there. You might not know that Grace isn't actually from the bush originally and led a very internationally focused life, growing up in Sydney, living in London and studying international studies in Chile. She only made the move to the bush seven hours out of Sydney, joining her husband, a farmer, 
who she'd met at 14 years old at playing trick or treat and with whom she now shares four beautiful kids. That's two episodes recently with a heartthrob farmer. Take notes, ladies. <laughs> Grace has so much to share on shifting priorities and your identity, compromise and partnership, stumbling upon unexpected purpose in life and grabbing that purpose with everything you've got. What an amazing hero for rural Australia, who I know will steal your heart like she did mine. Grace Brennan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. We have been having such a great time that we have been chatting for about 25 minutes before we started recording. It's been wonderful. I've so enjoyed it, but I'm really sorry to have delayed you by 25 minutes. Let's get this show on the road. <laughs> oh, it was an absolute joy, but I cannot wait to get this show on the road because you have such a wonderful story and also some very exciting news to share. But as you will know from your deep dive into the show over the past couple of weeks, I kick off every episode by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them, which I think to the guest sounds like such a weird question and often such a straightforward and obvious answer. But for people who have only heard of you through, you know, your 2020 Australia Day address or through the Australian of the Year Awards or through the accolades and amazing figures and impact that you've had, it can be really easy to get a really glossy perception on the outside. But I loved in that 2020 Australia Day address that you mentioned, you know, when you read other people's bios, it all seems so flashy and wonderful, <laughs> but you would you would write yours down as Grace Brennan still finding her feet. I absolutely love that. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is something really relatable? I still feel like that. I just feel like my whole life is, you know, I'm suffering the same universal mess that everybody else is. I've got, I just had an antenna guy arrive at my house and have to step over like toast on the floor and milk and like <laughs> as I showed him through to the room. But do you know, I was down to earth. I don't know whether this is down to earth, but I am that person at a party that like stalks the waiter with food like I I like think from the moment I get there I think okay where is the food going to be and how can I position myself <laughs> fortuitously <laughs> so if I didn't already so, think that we were going to be best friends at every event that we ever went to together I would be right there with you like I will stand near the toilets okay. because that's near the kitchen even though oh that's my God. gross and like maybe get a little bit cranky if I'm not getting the temporal prawn <laughs> like just come at me <laughs> But then when they do come past, I'm like, well, in case you don't come back again, I should probably get eight oh in God. one go. Oh <laughs> so I've got the serviette Having and a work- pile. Oh, my God. Always. And, like, I know, like, I worked in a pub for for many years at uni and I just know how the waiters must feel about, like, they're walking back into the kitchen going, avoid the pest, avoid that <laughs> weapon in the corner. But I can't, it's like a compulsion. I can't not think about Oh, my God. Food. I love that so much. And that is so relatable, like so many of us. Is that down to earth or just hungry? I think it's both. I think it's why it's okay. down to earth is because it happens at events that are usually, like if there's canapes and tempura prawns, it's a fancy event. Yeah. So you're usually <laughs> dressed really nicely and you've got makeup on and you might have even been the speaker and so everyone's looking at you oh as God. like this fancy person. But then you're just a vulture on the poor waitress lady. And yeah. I also like... Like if the tempura prawns need sauce and I'm getting eight for later, I need them all to have sauce. So I'll stand there and dip each one in and be like, just hold on. I just. Oh, multiple dips. Multiple dips. Yeah, multiple. Yeah. Do we, do you, (laughs) do you have to top and tail or are you okay with a double dip? I know it's not Seinfeld, but, but your thoughts? I mean, in pre-COVID times, I'm a big double dipper. 
Oh, shit. Yeah. But lately. Oh, yeah, COVID. Great point. I mean, I haven't had a tasting plate in so long I wouldn't know, but I'd have to probably reevaluate <laughs> my openness to a double dip in this post-COVID Oh, my God, world. you're so right. <laughs> yes, you're so right. We're pivoting in all areas of life here, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so good. Oh my, god. <laughs> oh my god! I actually just can't wait to go to a party together now, so we can just sit in the corner and steal all the food. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> all right, your way to yay. Now, this is the chapter that I love so much because so many people walk into your life, particularly in your case, where your idea has come not as your first career or not straight after school, and it's propelled you onto the scene. So people just forget that you. Have had a whole life of building up to this, most of which involved you having no clue where you'd end up. So I like going all the way back to, I mean, even the fact that people know you as Grace Brennan, that's your married name. You had a whole identity before that. So take us back to young Grace Clark, what you were like as a kid. I know you had a childhood of backyard cricket. You met your husband at 14 when he threw an egg at you. Like it's just a beautiful story, but you aren't originally from the bush, which I also found really interesting. So talk us through your first jobs, what you thought you wanted to be and just what you were like as a child. Isn't it so nice when somebody brings up the maiden name? I really love that you know my maiden name and that I get to talk about it because it is this kind of past identity that you can never really bring up again without making a point of it. So yeah, I, I mean, can I just also acknowledge the way to yay also suggests that I'm at the yay and I, I just fundamentally <laughs> like need to challenge that. So we'll talk about that later. But I, yeah, I grew up in Sydney. I was one of five kids and had this lovely experience of this beautiful home life with lots of influences from older siblings. I was quite like a fair bit younger than my older siblings. So was shaped by them just as much as my parents and yeah, met Jack. I lived across the road from a boarding school where he was at school and I used to catch the ferry home from school and I'd walk through and he'd be like playing golf, pretending to play golf on the lawn. And we got, we used to get chatting. But the, I mean, I tell the story that when we met, he threw an egg at me and I caught it and, and then the rest is history. We fell in love. But I had actually been stalking him before that, <laughs> like as I'd catch the ferry home. Oh yeah. Like, you know, when you're younger, you have, in my diary, I was, you know, I love, but there was like a list. You had a list of crushes. There was never just one exclusive <laughs> crush. So he was on the list. No, you've got to keep your options open. Yes, exactly. So he was on the list and, and yeah, we went trick-or-treating one night with friends and we ran into, I thought we were about to get mugged or something horrendous because that's where my mind goes. So I hid in like the garden and then realized these big scary men were actually like 14-year-old boys just trick-or-treating with us <laughs> so we had this wonderful catch-up and as we left he kind of tried to egg us and I caught it so we've been together kind of ever since and grew up together which was you know lovely and challenging all at the same time yeah oh my god and then fast forward sorry he was from the bush and I just knew that if we were going to be together forever, his passion for, for farming and life out here was going to have to kind of become one of my passions and I was going to move to this life. So that took some time to get my head around, but eventually I moved out here probably over 10 years ago now and we're married and we have four kids and I'm just sinking my teeth into life in the bush. And I think that in itself is a fascinating part of the story because 
to make a relationship work when you do fall in love with someone, you know, sometimes it happens when you already live in the same city and you have really compatible ideas of the future, but sometimes one of you has to make a really big compromise and shift Mm. and change in, you know, where you envisioned your life would go. And I, I, you know, I was reading that after you guys finished school, you did a gap year overseas together. You were in England, Jack traveled the world. So you, it's not as though you both grew up in a small town and never wanted to leave and just stayed in a small town. You know, you'd gone out to see the world. So you could have conceivably had very different ideas of what the future might hold for you. So I think for other people out there who have made big moves for love and for their partner and to make a family work, we'll probably identify a lot when we get to the NATA of how you adjust to that identity. I know you cried for like six hours of a drive all the way there the first time, but that doesn't mean you don't want that life. It, it just means, you know, there are hard parts of, of giving up your identity to an extent Absolutely. and swapping it for a new one. And I think that we were unique in the sense that we were both like even from a young age, I remember my mum saying to me, cause we didn't take it too seriously at school. We weren't one of those, you know, those high school relationships that jump to kind of marriage straight away and that you just, you know, they're, they're kind of, we weren't on top of each other. We had, we saw each other once in a while, but it just kind of kept going. And that relationship started to get more and more serious. And so by the end of school, we'd already been together for a few years. And it was just this kind of knowing that this person is significant, neither one of us getting ahead of ourselves and neither one of us kind of even talking about a life together, but knowing that basically that we had kind of met the person, I think. And I remember mum saying to me, you know, he'll live in Warren. Like that's where his heart is. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, this will, this will be a challenge for you. And we were so young. I think I was 18. I'm like, oh my God, like, let me worry about that later. But she had the wisdom. Mum, mum met my dad when she was like 11 or 13 or some, something bizarre like that. So (gasps) she had this, we had this shared history. Yeah. Really similar story. It's crazily similar, but she, she paid this relationship, the respect it kind of deserved, even when we were younger, which most parents are like, oh, teenage love, you know, they'll, they'll get over it. But as we approach, you know, in, in those, in that year 12 time, when things start to get a bit serious, I remember we were approaching the exams and you know, that talk around like, you shouldn't have a serious boyfriend in year 12 because you know, when exams come, it's it's a risk. <laughs> yes. And sure enough, the Friday before the exams, we broke up and my I was just heartbroken <gasps> and a proper heartbreak. And I couldn't, so I did not care one bit about the exams. You know, we, we obviously reconciled and, and I feel like I went through a lot of maturing through those years when, when most people aren't because this person that I happened to meet when I was so young was the love of my life. So we kind of, as I said, we grew up together and went through some, you know, challenging heartbreak. Although I don't think he was that heartbroken, to be fair. <laughs> just, just me. That's Unilateral heartbreak. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. He came around. He came around. I think something else really lovely about your story as well is that, you know, a lot of the conversations in anyone's kind of way TA on this show is about chapters and different people coming into your life at different times. But not very often have we had someone where you don't need to necessarily have had multiple different mm. people to bring out different versions of you. You've both evolved as different people, but together, and it's it's possible, which is really inspiring. But also I think what it makes me think of is how there's such a typical story. I mean, even with my husband, he was, you know, brought up in a small town in Devonport and in Tassie and the whole idea of success in the future was get out of that small town. 
not move from mm. Sydney back into a small town. And so yes. you're also a really shining example of kind of making a, not a reverse, but a perceived move in the opposite direction to what most people would expect people were trying to do, which I think is fascinating as well, because again, it reiterates that idea that happiness and success and fulfillment doesn't look one way for everyone. And you you make what makes in your life work. But looking at you in uni, you know, I was reading about your degree in management and then also international studies. You were in Chile, like you were in Santiago. So it's not like you didn't have a really big international goal. So how did that, you know, when you were at uni, what did you think that combination of degrees was going to lead you to? And then how did that change as you were returning to Australia? Because that's a big shift in itself. Yeah. So I did have a curiosity and an interest in a big life, I suppose. And I went to this fantastic school where they, it was an all girls school, but they really celebrated what women can do. And, you know, I felt like I'd been given this incredible gift and, of course, we were going to go and make the most of it. And then ultimately when somebody has a vocation like farming and in a partnership, anything I really wanted to do was less important or less significant to both of us than his absolute passion of of farming. So it just naturally took a back seat. But I actually think almost before that happened, I was subconsciously charting a path that would allow me to to, to work out wherever we may be in remote Australia. So that time in Chile, you're right, I was studying international studies and majoring in Chile. And it was kind of, I think, my last ditch kind of, I'm just going to go and have the best time ever and have this fun and a, a real, you know, a significant learning experience that doesn't need to lead me to some employment opportunity. It's really about living for living's sake because, you know, it wasn't about, I don't like I didn't have some plan as as to where that degree would take me. I just wanted to learn. So Jack came with me for 6 months of that year and he lived with me in in Chile and did nothing while I went off to university and he kind of <laughs> sweeped the floors of this <laughs> this Chilean household and the host the, the the family we lived with was like who is this guy who cleans when you're at university? <laughs> so we had this wonderful time together. And in fact, you're right about like his dad was this really wise, incredible, bright mind who who didn't want the burden of farming to just be an absolute given for Jack. In fact, he often used to say, you know, I don't want this life for you. You need to go off. It'd be mad to come back and get into farming because it's a mugs game. When deep down we knew, we knew absolutely that he wanted Jack to, you know, it, it, it's such a joy for him to see Jack living this life. But so he was you know, at times pushing him away to go and learn, go and get a degree, don't come straight back to the farm. But when Jack turned around at 22 or something and said, I'm going to go spend six months in South America, his dad thought that was madness. Like, what are you going to, you know, waste your time doing that for? But I think for our relationship, it was kind of a significant moment too, because he was following me in that little dreaming moment and we could have that great experience together. And then when we moved home is when he he settled and, and went back to the farm permanently and I spent a bit more time in Sydney. So I feel that for the sake of our relationship, that give and take element, he was giving to me in that moment and and it's lovely that we had that. But in terms of that culture of moving away from a small town because there's, there couldn't be much on offer in a small town, you've got to go and experience life elsewhere. I think by From the Bush, part of my motivation is to say to people, my God, look at what's out here. Look at these people doing incredible things. There's talent, there's eccentricity. There's all sorts of things in the bush that 
maybe that really two-dimensional image of, of a farmer in a hat that we present to Australia is not, you know, it's not the only thing. And there is joy to be had in a small town for sure. I think that's something I loved reading or listening to in your Australia Day speech was that, you know, on any given day, an Aussie farmer is an amateur scientist, a vet, a builder, a mechanic, they're managing multi-million dollar assets, you know, in terms of business and management and technical skills, like you don't just grow sheep and have a cropping farm by just, you know, wearing a hat and chewing on hay, you know, like it actually takes, there's oh my God, exactly. <laughs> genetically testing sheep, like, like there's science, there's so much intellect and, and stimulation. It's just, I, I love what you have done because you're bringing that to light in a way that people would A, assume that you came from the bush to have the passion that you do. Like why would anyone choose to go and become so passionate when they've come from a city? <laughs> but also you, you've given it a platform where, you know, because they are so busy genetically testing sheep, most farmers don't think I need a social media mm. platform to help show this to the world. You know, you've created a really wonderful way to communicate that as a career path, but also as a life path, that it's it's a beautiful place. You've got four children growing up in the bush. What an amazing way for them to grow up in this country. Yeah. I mean, that's right. It's It's not just a beautiful place. It's an impressive place. It's an interesting, engaging place and I think modesty runs so deep in rural Australia that there's a culture and one of the things you know having moved from the city to the bush the culture shock was bigger than moving to Chile like the, there is significant cultural difference between the city and the bush and I had cousins in the country and I'd grown luckily I already loved it before I got here but certainly living here and, and getting to know the community more I think that same modesty holds us back a little bit out here because nobody wants to sing it from the rooftops about how great we are and what we do. And like <laughs> ag agriculture in Australia is incredible in, in terms of where it sits globally. So I just think that that's a story worth telling. And sometimes it takes an outsider's eye to present that in, in, in a way that people in the city will understand and get. Yeah, absolutely. And I also love looking at from, you know, that the big move to Warren and then your career path shifting towards agriculture and, and, growing the skills that you would need to then found Buy From The Bush, I think four years after that, it's so interesting how that started to brew. Like it wasn't something you just arrived and went, oh my God, there's drought. Oh, I need to spread this to the world. You know, it was like, again, one of those things that people's big yay. And as you mentioned, the very start of your yay, definitely not, you know, anywhere near the end starts as a small seed and little bits, you know, you started by getting a job in agriculture. I think it was AgDraft that you worked at for four years before Buy From The Bush was even a concept. So can you take us through that period? It was that four years at AgDraft when you'd first moved or were you, or were you still in Sydney then? And then how did sort of that 2000, I think it was October the 16th, 2019, that Buy From The Bush Oh, my started. God, you're so Talkers. researched. Oh, my God. <laughs> you mean stalkerish, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm into it. So I think I was saying before that I, I subconsciously shaped a career around living out here. And what I was really interested in was how to use – I did a management degree, but focusing on the leisure industry. So tourism, the arts, sport, and and what I was interested in is how they can be used as a mechanism for community development. So when I moved out here, I moved towards a community development job and specifically working with Indigenous youth engagement. So working in kind of at-risk youth and then 
had a sideways step into kind of athlete development. So again, trying to create meaningful pathways from from remote, you know, Western New South Wales through to high performance sport. But still my passion was kind of the community development side of that. And then a bit more youth work in there too. And I was on maternity leave from this youth work job. And this girl who works with my husband was pitching this idea of AgDraft, which was an employment platform to connect employers in agriculture with job seekers. And labor in agriculture is a global problem. It's it's an enormous problem. And she was pitching this idea. And I hadn't had anything to do with startups, nothing to do with pitching, but I was super interested because we had talked about this labor problem and, and actually we kind of stewed on a solution of our own. And so I worked on this pitch with her. And weirdly, I think a startup and community work have a bit in common. You're trying to get buy-in in both in both instances. So I was helping her with her pitch. And in the end, she won this, this competition. She launched the business and then I started working for her and, and eventually kind of became a co-founder in that online platform. And that was my first foray, both into agriculture, but also that startup online platform space and learned so much. I'd worked in a really not-for-profit kind of area before, and this was absolutely for-profit. You were kind of heckling to get (laughs) capital investment. I remember going to this pitch competition and and she used these words like iterate and pivot. I was like, do we need to mention that? Because I feel like that's just like a bit... (laughs) Feel wanky, and she was like, "No, no, no, we need to mention it." Okay, but anyway, yeah, it was a steep learning curve. It was also this great experience of working with a female partner and how that works. I didn't know her that well before, but we worked really well together. And then, weirdly, I think "Buy from the Bush" was a combination of that startup online space and and that my community development work coming together. Was that so long-winded? Sorry. Oh, my so God. Boring. It was the shortest winded ever. No. Oh, my okay. gosh. Your story is <laughs> fascinating. Trust me. Uh, I know long-winded okay. <laughs> and, and that was not it. <laughs> In fact, it was so <laughs> okay, articulate okay. and eloquent. You are such a good speaker. <laughs> I start to get goosebumps around this point of any episode where all those dots start to come together. Like even if you might have at that time not really known what direction all these jobs were going into, lots of sideways moves, lots of upskilling, but Mm. again, not really clear what it was ultimately going to be for, that now knowing what you have done with that, it all makes sense looking back at the skills that you were acquiring in the startup land and then also in pitching and stuff, like it all comes together. But I love reminding people who are in the chapter now where they don't get where they're going just reminding them, don't worry, they're just dot points and everything will start to connect eventually because then you were able to turn it into something that has become so, you know, pervasive in society. Yeah, I feel like life is just one big skill acquisition journey, isn't it? And that's what my, like <laughs> I, kind of, I kind of felt like my life out here was I was going to try and find meaningful work to do around my life in the middle of nowhere. And of course, now it's led me to something super significant and I couldn't be doing this unless I lived where I lived. So absolutely what you just said is true. And I think I, I have this, because I share an office with a few other women in in a small town of Warren and they have watched me. I worked in that office when I worked for the a youth foundation organizing, you know, skate skateboarding events for young people, <laughs> then into ag draft and you know, trying to make a go of it, trying to make a go of this startup, trying to get customers, trying to prove the concept. It's such a lonely, lonely path, that startup world. And then and then buy from the bush and it's like this incredible instant success. And always the 
you know, journalists say, oh, my God, it's such a simple idea. Did you ever expect it would, you know, it's been this overnight success? And my friend kind of interrupted me one day and said, every time I hear that, I want to say, well, that's the short version, you know, because she had watched this evolution, which, you know, I hadn't been conscious of. But absolutely, you just bit by bit piecing it together. And then what the, the wonderful thing about Buy From The Bush was that I could just be my absolute self and use the little bits and pieces I'd gathered from elsewhere and apply them, you know, without restraint in this context and have an impact. I think possibly when I've been doing other things, I've been holding back one part of myself because I thought, oh, you know, that's not appropriate in this context or that's not relevant or I don't know enough to kind of speak up. And then this comes along and I can just go, well, I, you know, I I don't have to be anyone but a mother of four, a farmer's wife who's got a little bit of experience here and there. And I'm trying to Make, you know, create change. And I think it frees you up, oh. kind of tap into your talents. Yes. Oh my gosh. And that's where this way TA concept just makes me so excited because most of the time when people do find their thing and the thing that does take off, it's when they stop curtailing parts of themselves because of expectation or circumstance or self-doubt or whatever it is. You can't find the job that's suited for you until you let who you really are actually come out. Otherwise, how can anything suit you? Because no one knows who you actually are. Yes. So I love that so much. And I also love the way that you've framed it a couple of times now around you were trying to build a life and a career and a pathway that suited where you lived. And most people don't do it that way. They don't do it in that order. They make the rest of their life work around what they think success is and they try and reverse engineer from there. And it's unusual for someone to have chosen a lifestyle and chosen a family situation or chosen a location and then have built their dreams within that framework. It's quite a different way to come at things. But I think Mm. your story is amazing for proving that it doesn't preclude you from finding something that you could never have found in Sydney. You can't found buy from the bush from Sydney. You wouldn't have even had the insight into the communities that you would have if you were there. So Mm. I just think that's really beautiful that you're, you know, exactly where you're meant to be. And obviously the person who was the right person to bring this message to life, even though it did just start as a hashtag and has now become this gigantic movement. So talk us through that, you know, that 2019 moment at the kitchen table and where the idea started, like I know it was really driven by the impact of drought, which in Melbourne, you know, we're always complaining about how much it rains and how wet it is and have really such a big detachment from actually the impact of drought on farmers. How did that kind of start to spur you on to, to start this? Yeah, so we, where I was, there was, we'd been in about three years of drought and it was it was really about as bad as it gets on in our little patch of country. But, you know, in, in Queensland, there'd been communities in six years of drought. And at times there was media coverage here and there. But then what I noticed was, you know, all of a sudden maybe the Hunter Valley was dry and, at, you know, just outside of Sydney. And then, you know, media agencies were sending people an hour out of Sydney or two hours out of Sydney and, and getting a reporter to sound on like dry earth and, and starting to talk about the drought. But through these really basic, frame that didn't really connect with me as a you know as somebody who was involved in farming and somebody experiencing it and so I you know I stewed on that for a while and and over the years you know you don't start complaining about drought in the first year because that's just what farming is everyone's used to that the second year it's like you know this is a bit tough but this is what farming is and then in this third year I just you know I was kind of I think because of my city sensibility was wondering whether this 
is as bad as I thought it was. Like I was like, this is horrendous. Like there is no joy in the day here. It's incredibly stressful because, you know, cash flow dries up. People are kind of asset rich and cash poor often in in agriculture. So they're, they're sitting on really valuable assets, but they can't make money out of them. They have to keep spending money on them when it doesn't rain. And it's just this accumulative stress, then that ripples through the community because things like fundraisers at school are cancelled because people don't really want to spend money on tickets, but you don't really want to acknowledge that that's why they're being cancelled. Mm. You know, shop fronts start to close and, and the the shop owners might not go to the trade fair to buy new wares because nobody's coming in to buy their old stock anyway. The hairdresser stops getting clients. Things are kind of slow. You can really easily get in. People don't buy as much like groceries. There's just these little things that add up. And I think, you know, people stop looking at each other in the eyes quite so much and you don't smile as much. And if you get together, you kind of talk about these dust storms because it's awful, but also you don't really want to talk about depression. And then so Mm. one day, a couple of things happened. I heard this radio interview and it was between the prime minister and a journalist and it was so combative. And I kind of understood it from both angles. One was trying to make the Prime Minister accountable and saying, you know, you wouldn't even know there was a drought on in Australia. And then the Prime Minister was saying, but look at the money we're giving, you know, and all of it was just ignoring the big reality, which is this human cost and that and this burden of stress that was being carried by households and especially women. And all the vision was men in paddocks and dying sheep. And I just felt that this community experience was possibly not understood by people in the city mm. because, of course, we weren't telling the story. And then I, in, in the course of two days, I ran into three people who mentioned suicide, like worry about suicide among their family members. And I stopped and thought, no, it's not because I'm from the city. This is actually really bad. People just are tight-lipped here. So I thought there's nothing to lose. I'm just going to start sharing all these incredible businesses that exist out here and encouraging people in the city to do Christmas shopping from them. And it was as simple as like literally at first I tried to write a letter in response to this this radio interview. I thought, no, I've got to tell people what it's really like. And then thought, what the hell is the letter going to do? And like, who is it to? Who am I sending this to? <laughs> so instead I kind of <laughs> closed the letter and opened Canva and created a logo and then posted in Instagram. And this friend who I'd mentioned it to, like I said to Millie, oh, will you help me with this? I've got this weird idea. And she said, yeah, I'll help you. And the next minute she's getting friend requests from my Instagram, <laughs> from my, from the voice. She's like, whoa, okay, <laughs> this is, this is happening. And so it just, yeah, it started from there. But that was the idea that I wanted to kind of reframe the conversation around drought to include the impact on community, on small business, on women, but also in the same breath celebrate this like hustle that was happening because what happens is that the cash flow from agriculture dries up. And so people not even working in farming are affected, obviously. And the impact of that is that women often, the, those supplementary incomes that were maybe a, a hobby or a side project start to become like the primary income. And and so their, their drive and their almost their, their position within the household becomes more of a breadwinner, which is quite a significant shift. So capturing that, but in, obviously in a light and accessible way and just saying, hey, here's a nice handbag. Do you want to buy it? And you'll be helping a rural community if you do. (laughs) 
I don't know about you guys, but I get such a rush of motivation and energy to keep learning and upskilling when I hear from our guests each week. If you're feeling the same, I am so thrilled to share that I'm hosting a free small business bootcamp series presented by our partner in Yay, PayPal. Putting some incredible guests, connections and targeted tools at your disposal from the comfort of your own home. There are three webinars in the series so far, optimizing your online strategy for sales, which we've already had, but it is still online for you to go back and catch up. It blew me out of the water. I took so much away from our panelists, so make sure you go and have a watch. Social media strategy for small businesses, the topic we all want to know about. And thirdly, buy now, pay later, exploring the future of payments. Pop September 23rd and October 21st for those remaining two in your calendars. And I've included the link to register in the show notes. One giant silver lining of the past year or so has been getting access to some of the cleverest minds and their wisdom without having to go anywhere. So don't miss the chance to take advantage while you can. Hopefully see you there, neighborhood. Oh my gosh, Grace. It's just, I am... So I just filled with passion and awe and uh, compassion as well and just excitement that this has done what you had hoped but probably well beyond what you had ever dreamed could be possible. But I think why it's so powerful is that often you do get these human interest stories and you'll see, you'll get a little inkling of how tough it actually is and the ripple effects through the community beyond farming. But then there's this big divide of well, what what can I do? Like even if I wanted to donate money, it's like, well, where and how do I make sure it gets to that farmer and how do I impact that actual problem? And so you've paired storytelling with action towards helping the problem. You know what I mean? Like you've made this direct yes. way of people to they get the emotion sparked, but then they can do something with it. And there are so many people who would want to help you, but just not have the platform to do it. That's the biggest problem in most cases is not the lack of compassion. It's the lack of what do I do with that compassion? And to see, I mean, I was reading some of the stats again, and I just nearly wanted to cry that in six weeks, there was a 660% increase for business owners from creating buy from the bush as a hashtag and $5 million in revenue that you had generated in just four months, that wouldn't have been there. And I think even Australia Post reported a 40% increase in parcel postage in regional areas to the point where the packages were selling out because people, like, there was just no precedent for that kind of volume for businesses. And that, I mean, I don't know how you don't cry every day just thinking about that alone. You are just <laughs> extraordinary for like making that happen. And I know it probably doesn't sink in very often for you, but I'm sure when it does, like, that is just. Amazing. It is amazing. I do like to just think about it every now and again because it has been such a whirlwind. But those first four months leading into Christmas and beyond were just something. I mean, if you ever needed a reminder of how good people are, we were at the coal face of of that. Like it was just, I couldn't even share. I, I kept saying to people, I wish people could just see my inbox and see the offers of help and the support and the kind of joy that people were getting from being involved in this community movement. I think people like a community-driven response that's going to actually enact change. So being kind of a conduit to that goodwill was was just so rewarding and still is. And I think it's also, we talked about this actually in uh, the PayPal webinar that we did the other day, just in terms of 
community building as well is that I think when you're building a business, a lot of people assume that you need to be totally reinventing the wheel every time. Like you can't start a business or you can't roll with an idea unless you've invented Mm. something new, which in this day and age is very, very rare unless it's a very minute scientific discovery or like there's not much that hasn't been (laughs) rediscovered. But being a conduit that solves a problem as a service is almost more impactful because that's the disconnect between problem and solution is often more the problem than like a lack of having a particular product. And I love that you've built a feeling, you've built a brand, you've built a sense of belonging without having to physically create a product because you've created a community. And I think that's really beautiful as well. So if anyone is sitting on an idea that doesn't feel like, oh, but you know, I'm just connecting A with B. Well, that's what a business is, connecting A with B. Absolutely. There was a need. There were multiple needs that this tapped into. I think there was a need on the farming side, but there was also this need in the city of, of, as you say, somebody to facilitate them wanting to help and wanting to support. They just needed to be enabled to do that. And that's what this did. And I think even further to your point, we didn't have a product. It was just a hopeful movement. And then we have now developed an online marketplace to kind of build infrastructure around this community and around this movement. And in some ways, you know, this was never meant to be a business. For me, it was it was a response to a crisis. But in, you know, in business theory, what we did was build value and build that social proof and that brand loyalty and then launch a business model that hopefully still is true to that value and, and that, you know, why people joined with us in the first place. It's just a revenue generating model now that that will sustain our activity going forward, you know. So it has been interesting also. I mean, that's, I don't know whether it is that interesting to you, but for me, that quite a fascinating challenge and transition from this hopeful movement to business and getting, you know, all the nuts and bolts of that. And we've had this amazing support from PayPal in order for us to, you know, to do that. But the psyche and the mindset around it, you have to kind of, always be in touch with your purpose and and your core in order to still get the joy out of it. Absolutely. And I think that's something that you're so good at speaking about. And it was interesting before we started recording, the novelty or like how quickly this has skyrocketed from a movement to a business makes you feel like you're disqualified from talking about certain things. But I think it actually makes your opinions more relevant because we are in such a time of rapidly changing environments inability really to plan much further ahead than a couple of months, constantly dealing with fast changes and uncertainty and and rolling with like, what's the next iteration? Stay in the bush. And then you've got another new exciting project coming and like everyone has been thrown into that environment now. So that makes people like you who have just been through it and are continuing to go through it, your opinion is probably what we need to be the loudest right now because you have gone into a time without having a real plan and then having to just figure out how best to continue that why in constantly changing circumstances. So feel free to also weave in some of the NATA here, like the fast pace, the self-doubt, the burnout, the like overwhelm of choice of like which direction to go in, you know, how have you gone on to decide marketplace and then stay in the bush. And then also I hear you have a very exciting new project that you might want to introduce here as well. Oh yeah. Insert here. <laughs> Insert here. TBC. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know about. It was literally in the notes TBC because it, it comes out tomorrow <laughs> at the time of recording. It will be out yes. by the time we release this. So yeah. Talk us through that next. Yes. BFTB big break. Oh. 
But do you want me to go in there now? I know. I, I feel like I've got a bit to say before I get to that. So I think the something that came up as you were saying, and it definitely is my nay to yay. I'm really embracing your language. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> but it's that idea that I have lived life wanting to under-promise and over-deliver. Like that's kind of my approach. And I also am acutely aware, like whatever context I'm in, I'm quite aware of what I don't know. So I think some people aren't built like this. Like they're, they're confident in what they know and that is enough. But even if I'm confident in what I know, I am often thinking, okay, well, but there's so much I don't know and there's so much yet to, to find out. And I think that that mindset is not a particularly positive one in some business context. I think, you know, sometimes you, if you're not going to sell yourself, then who the hell is? So mm. it's it's your responsibility to do that. And imposter syndrome for me, it's definitely a thing in, in a work context, but specifically it's that thing, well, I, I'm not really an expert in this or that. There are people in the room who would know more than me, so I'll just sit quietly and absorb their wonder and insight. And, you know. and actually what I learn more often than not is that I know more than I think I know and my perspective, my insight is is valuable and absolutely kind of there's a place for it at the table. And it's been the steepest learning curve you know, in 18 months because straight away, like really, really early on, we were working with Facebook and PayPal and big multinational corporations who wanted to partner with us. And in that moment, there's no like when you're just one person and a friend helping you, there's no <laughs> departments you can deflect questions to. Like it's it's you having to, okay, we'll talk about PR in this breath. We'll talk about legal in this breath. We'll do some creative assets on the weekend, like just every little aspect of, and every entrepreneur probably knows this, but for me, the pace that you mentioned was actually really beneficial because there was no time to stew on that idea that like, you don't know as much as these people, you just had to do, 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 do. Like if I was asked to speak, everything in me wanted to say no, but I was on this forward motion that I just was like, okay, yeah, because that's going to create more noise around buy from the bush. So I've got to do that. And I've just, my goal was so clearly reach and impact that no self-indulgent nerves was going to trump that in a way, you know, it wasn't more important. So I consistently battle with that idea of wanting an expert in the room. Like I just want to defer to an expert all the time. I want to <laughs> defer to dad probably like, dad, can you tell me what's going on here? But yeah, learning that you are actually the decision maker and pushing back when something doesn't feel right. I'm still kind of learning to do that, but I have had really fortunate experiences with partners and, and people helping me along the way. And early on, like what also what needed to happen. And I think this is probably interesting to people. When Buy From The Bush did take off, there was heaps of offers of help. And my instinct naturally was to go, oh, chill out. Like I, I'll do this. Like I can handle this. And I don't know you, mm -hmm. like, can I really rely on you? But actually what I learned was output is just exponentially increased when you start to tap into to different people's gifts and skill sets. So like Georgie Robertson, who is a PR guru from Wagga, got in touch with me about an opportunity early on. And then she was like, I think I can help you with this. Like, do you want to put my name on the bio and, and say like PR? And I'm like, no, no, because then I look like really professional. She was like, no, trust me, <laughs> I think you might need it. So, and then suddenly I had this like amazing insight from her and, and a partner in crime basically and and then a family friend said I know how to build websites like do you want me to build it and I was like no 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 and then next week 
actually, oh my God, can you? And we, you know, we played together as kids, but we didn't know each other that well as adults. And suddenly we became, you know, working collaborators. And it that has been a great learning for me, just tap into like say yes. And then yeah. if it feels right and feels good. And then it's just such a joy when you when you do work in collaboration with somebody who's really great. So I am jumping all over the place here, but I think um a couple of learnings were that sometimes when you're busier, you actually don't get in the way of yourself quite so much and you can achieve mm-hmm. way more if you, you know, sideline the self-doubt and just, you know, focus on getting shit done. And that certainly worked for me. I actually think, you know, a year on from launch when it was down to the the business end of, you know, establishing a marketplace and suddenly asking people to pay for something that we'd been doing for free and, you know, a slight shift in the relationship I had with the bush businesses we showcase, all of that, I I tend to get kind of bogged down in because I really value relationships and and value this community Mm -hmm. we've built. And I always want to make sure I'm delivering value. And actually, you also need to make sure that you're making money so that you can survive. And I mean, burnout is like, I'm, I'm burnt out. <laughs> I was burnt out like a while ago. I'm just running on empty um, if I'm, if I'm being honest. So I think that, yeah, there's, there's so much nay and it's just finding those moments in the day where you think, oh, this is quite fun. And if there's enough of those moments, it, it counterbalances the stress because God, yeah, running a business is stressful. <laughs> such a shit show but such a rewarding one (laughs) (laughs) but I I also I love what you said about the fact that just not giving yourself doubt room or time really to Mm. to kind of magnify itself sometimes the pace of the growth of a business and and we had this in the first year of Matcha Maiden when it was exponential and it was that kind of crazy rush I feel the same, very, very fortunate that I didn't have a minute to think, to double guess anything because mm. there was just no time. Mm. But I think if you're not forced into that pace, you have to create that same lack of room for self-doubt to to fester. Ah, interesting. You know what I mean? Like even if your business isn't moving so fast that you don't have a choice, I think if you just rip the Band-Aid, like by the time I started the podcast – I didn't have that kind of speed or demand for the podcast, yeah. but I recreated that kind of pace by just buying the equipment and then booking a guest and then booking the next guest and kind of creating a pace that yes. didn't allow me to yes. think about it too much. Because otherwise, if you don't rip the band-aid, like you can create that speed of action to stop self-doubt coming in for as long as you need to. I have often wondered that. I've I've genuinely wondered whether you can simulate the experience because it felt so organic. Like it it felt that I was doing this really good thing. So self-doubt, see you later. Like it's it's going to get in the way, bouncing from one thing to the next to the next. And I often, often thought if you thought about your commercial business, because at the time it wasn't, if I had applied this attitude to AgDraft, what could I have achieved? If, if I really just thought mm. the, the purpose of why you're doing this is so important that you need to just swallow any kind of doubt or, you know, barrier and just push through and push on, like what could I have achieved? And I think I, I will take this into anything I do in the future. But it's interesting way you just put it that you actually have to make yourself. And I think actually that is my new approach to work because when new projects come on, I do just kind of tumble into it and tumble through it because then you you don't get the sweats. 
because you know those sweats that stop you from making the phone call. Oh, absolutely. I almost think of it now when I start something new as, yeah, just barreling at it so hard and so fast that Mm. by the time you do slow down enough for self-doubt to creep in, it's too late. Like I've kind of hacked my own system by just going so fast that by the time it does hit me, I've already committed. And now now I can't back out. Like I've, I've stopped myself from being able to back out. It's almost like manipulating yourself into doing something that part of you doesn't want to do, but the other part of you does want to (laughs) do. Yes, 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 yes. In fact, that a learning from one of your other podcasts that Osha Gunsberg shared about, you know, that thing that the brain does where if you push against something that you're afraid of, it actually grows and grows the fear grows and grows or I'm, I'm paraphrasing and making it worse but god that resonated with me because <laughs> my husband doesn't he doesn't have that like if he has to make a bad phone call he'll make it first he'll pick up the phone and, and make it and I've always admired that in him and I I have always thought god I, I need some of that in me because I will think I'll get to that <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that tough phone call oh, but the tough phone call is so much easier if you do it in the beginning of the day to the end because the anxiety that is built up through the day. Oh, my God. And it festers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. So tell us about this mm. exciting new project, which is happening tomorrow. Oh, my God. I didn't even insert it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the worst salesperson ever. <laughs> that but that's what so I love bad. about you. Okay, yes. I love that so much. It's clear <laughs> that you're passion-driven rather than like sales first you know what I mean and oh I think my that's God. lovely it's oh. the pa- you're passionate about the story first <laughs> well I'm I am equally passionate about this cool idea that we've got off the ground so the idea is it's called BFTB big break buy from the bush big break competition and it's a pitching competition for anybody in rural Australia with an idea I know how cool is this I'm watching your face <gasps> uh, like a if they want to launch a product launch a business or if they have one and they just want to scale up. They've got this kind of, you know how you just need a little bit of something, something to get you over a hurdle and, and get you to the next stage. So sponsored yes. by PayPal, we are launching tomorrow. There's incredible prizes, like $60,000 worth of prizes up for grabs. And you've just got to, all you have to do, it might be the most scary thing you've ever heard, but it's just you have to make a selfie video and pitch your great idea to us and we're going to share it with our followers and there's a cool judges that we'll tell you about later. Probably by the time this goes to air, you can just find out on the website. But if you're, if you're rural and you've got this great idea, what we're really looking for is a business concept that will have positive impact on your community or rural Australia as a whole because obviously Buy From The Bush is a great evidence of, you know, when people invest in business in the bush, incredible ripple effects flow through communities and we really believe that. So that's it. It's a pitching comp for for rural Australians to get their – yeah, to, to build legs around their business. I'm really excited. And we're going to, yeah, have lots of fun with it. Oh my gosh, what an amazing initiative. I'm so excited and so excited to hear from the businesses that pitch because, oh my gosh, how exciting. Exactly. Yeah, and you can vote. There's a People's Choice Award, so I'll let you know about that. But yeah, that's the idea because a couple of things. Like one is obviously in my experience at AgDraft, pitching for capital, when you're in rural or remote Australia, you're often outside of those networks and you don't like bump into important people with buckets of cash that might want to back your idea. And I remember having this meeting in the startup hub in Sydney, which is like a, you know, a big building full of startups. And I pitched to this government agency and he, he said to me, look, if you were in this building, 
with that kind of traction and those numbers, you'd be funded by now. And I, I just thought it was a moment where I thought, I think I believe you. Like, I think if I, if this business was being run from, from Sydney, we'd be off and running and how ridiculous because we were a business focused on agriculture and we absolutely should be able to grow from, from rural and remote Australia. So it's kind of those beginnings, I think that's informing this competition. And I just think we, as rural Australians, we need to stand up and pitch ourselves, pitch our business and kind of sell the bush even more. So that's why the slightly uncomfortable factor of standing in front of your camera and, and giving a selfie video as part of the competition, it's very deliberate because I think put your face out there and sell it oh. and, and, you know, find some customers when you do. Oh my gosh, what a brilliant Brilliant next chapter for Buy From the Bush and I'll absolutely make sure to put all the links to all the details for any rural businesses or potential businesses who are listening. And I, I think that's such a great idea as well to get them out of the comfort zone to do a pitch because even yes. practicing on a video is once you've done it once, then you can do it twice. Then the third time isn't as scary. And then the fourth time, like it only gets easier the more you do it. So I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to see what this does for the community. Same here. I really am. It's like this fun. At the beginning of the year, we were kind of brainstorming. We had all the team together brainstorming and thinking about what we could do. And this this came up and it just energized everyone. We were just so into it. So to see it actually going live, I mean, there's so much I need to do before it actually goes live, but bring it on. So fun. Oh, how wonderful. Well, I don't see how there's going to be any answers to the next section, Play TA, which is your identity outside of all the things that you're doing. Because I don't know how with four kids and all these projects on the schedule that you've got any time, but I think it is something that maybe not so much at the very beginning or there are definitely times of your business where leisure and joy and downtime does sort of take a little bit of a backseat. But I think it is also important just for freshness of perspective as well and motivation to get away from what you're doing every now and then and just have moments where you forget what time it is or you're just distracted from the to-do list, whether it's, you know, a, a long puzzle for hours or if it's five minutes of lighting a candle, you know, whatever it is, it looks different for everyone. But I think play is something that's really important in our lives. Is there anything you do just to play, just that you allow yourself to waste time with even small things? In all your spare time. <laughs> exactly. My leisure management degree never comes up because it's the most random degree anybody could ever choose. But we did study the sociology of play and the idea that <gasps> women, I know, women, especially mothers, often suffer from not having those really clear defined kind of borders or parameters between work and play. And that is certainly my life. Like often my play is listening to a podcast while folding or even sometimes it's kind of those, you know, elements of service that women do like visiting a family member or something and having a cup of tea is, is leisure, but it's also because you think that that, you know, that'd be a nice thing to do for the family member. So it's really interesting. Like, is there room for play in, in my life at the moment? Not a lot. I do love a bath and I love a swim. Like, if I'm swimming, it's like you, you, you're childlike when you're swimming, aren't you? So for me, that's the best. But also just like quite random to share, but I'm going to because it's so fun. I just recently, with no time to do it at all, but because I feel like this play element is so important and making a choice around like some spare time activity that makes me happy, a friend and I, in lieu of a 20-year reunion because our 20-year school reunion has been cancelled this year because of Delta, the Delta variant, 
we are making a podcast in lieu of a reunion. So we're like catching up with people over the airwaves. How fun's that? That's so much fun. We just started on, on Saturday and interviewing people and I just I just left feeling so on top of the world because we'd had these giggles, these school induced giggles. So school friends are kind of my play as well, if if I could say that. I love that. And and any creative pursuits. I also think it's really interesting that they're always things that you haven't commercialized like that have no real productivity outcome like you're doing a podcast but you're not doing a podcast to get a million listeners you're doing it to tell stories because you guys are replacing a reunion you know and that's like in so many categories of thinking that's a waste of time like you could be using that for your business (laughs) you could be using that to listen to a business podcast you know but but it's not a waste of time because it allows you to have the giggles that you need to get back to doing your work when you eventually do go back to doing your work which is why I think play is as unproductive as it feels in the moment, it's actually one of the most productive things you could do for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, I mean, the value of stepping back, stepping outside of, of, you know, being involved in a business or in a family or in a relationship, like sometimes it's plays like going and and seeing somebody other than your immediate family members, isn't it? And, and so that you can get that separation. And so, especially when you live on a farm, yeah. you know, sometimes you actually just don't see anybody else apart from family members for a long time, which is a bit like COVID lockdown. This is our life. <laughs> but yeah, so I agree with you that the value, you're right, Those the wasted time thing is often the definition of play, isn't it? It's time that you can't put a, a, a value on, but it does so much good for you. So uh, yeah, to be totally honest, I don't have a lot of time for play at the moment, but I do capture those little moments of like a bath or a swim or creative pursuits because it yeah, brings me a lot of joy and joy makes you better at your job, I think. Absolutely. And what about you and Jack, particularly having been through so many chapters of your lives together? And I mean, this is good advice for any couples, but particularly really long, long-standing couples. Do you guys do date night and, you know, I imagine like running a farm full-time, having four kids and having a booming business and doing it all when you are quite isolated together. Like how do you kind of make that work? God, how do we make it work? I think we, he is a great listener, which not, oh God, I was going to say not all men are, but that's so unfair. (laughs) But (laughs) I know um, what you mean. (laughs) Like I think we have established really great foundations over many, many years before we carried all this responsibility and workload. But to be, God, I don't know that we're doing it very well. So we're lucky that we enjoy the same things and we like, you know, if we take holidays, we enjoy the same things, which is doing very little and um, and doing it together. And, you know, a beautiful meal is a highlight for us. Like we celebrate quite little things and, and don't need much. But we are so challenged by this stage of life and to present any other kind of reflection of, of it would be totally a mistruth. So I hope that the little moments of like a cup of tea and, you know, somebody told me about, and I can't remember where it came from, but about just like the hello and the goodbye in the evening from your partner and how important that, that was. And that I've never consciously thought it. My dad used to call my mum every day. He ran his own business as well. So he, he worked a lot and he would call home and I'd answer and he'd say, how's your mum? And I'd say, oh yeah, she's good. He'd say, okay, just tell her I'm checking in. And I'd say, do you want to speak to her? No, no, no. Just tell her I'm checking in. That used to annoy me so much as a kid. But now I think 
it was him saying, I love you every single day from work. And she used to do things like put lippy on in the evenings before he got home. And I know, like, it sounds so, I know in so many contexts that would be like, oh, like, did she feel she needed to put, but it's this shared kind of understanding, I think, between them of what they bring to the marriage. And I, I really hope that Jack and I also have that and we have it's not it's not through a date night or a, like a ritual but it's through everyday understanding that no matter how terribly hard it is we are better for each other and and I'm certainly better for having him in my life and I hope he feels the same daily. <laughs> I love that so much and and it's so true particularly in lockdown, which I, I'm sure like seems in some ways similar to you guys being quite isolated on, in one property together. There are a lot of things that feel really artificial, like putting lipstick on for each other after 14 years mm. or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's only awkward if you make it awkward. And it's those little artificial rituals when you have nothing else to pin a change in dynamic on that really make a difference. I mean, we've worked together and lived together and have been doing that for like six years, but two pretty much in lockdown. So if I didn't have those little rituals, like we would literally just be business partners that are housemates, which is not great. (laughs) Exactly. Do you listen to Esther Perel? Are you obsessed with Esther Perel? No. Oh my God. Esther Perel. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Please go. Is this going to change my life? Like actually change your life. And I mean, maybe not. Let's, maybe we'll revisit this and you can tell me whether she did or not, but just she's this, incredible communicator and she's she's a expert in erotic intelligence as opposed to emotional intelligence she's a she's a psychoanalyst who deals in relationships and her i mean i won't do her justice by describing her but and what you just said i think she would echo in in some of the things that she says around establishing those kind of things that make your relationship more than a friendship and housemates and business partners i mean working together I find that so fascinating and how you manage to keep the to keep the warm and fuzzies. <laughs> just so interesting. But please, yeah, Esther Perel. She I has could do a, a she whole a series po- on that. <laughs> oh, my God, you should. I'll, I'll interview you on yeah. <laughs> to survive your marriage. It'll be mostly, I'm not really sure. Let's ask the other <laughs> guests for feedback. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say when you just asked me the last question. I don't know. Skip forward 10 years. I'll let you know how we did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, second last question. What are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation, which if Jack were here, I would ask him because they're all those little (laughs) weird things that you do around the house that like only someone who lives with you would know. But quirky, like the weirder the better. Okay, quirky. Okay. I loved skateboarding when I was little and like just want people to know that generally that I was a skateboarder. <laughs> Babe, do you know is it's an Olympic quirky? sport now? You can actually exactly. go to Paris in 2024. 2020, wait, what is it? Yeah, 2024. I couldn't, I was never good, like, but it was just a, you know, I quite liked it. I would never beat the Olympics, but weirdly, like I did a, <laughs> I did a photo shoot recently and they were like, we want you to play with your kids. It's like, well, can I skateboard? <laughs> <laughs> and there was just this like childhood dream coming true. Uh, what else? I cannot stay still to music. Like I'm, I must dance if there's a beat. It's just in me, and and I think it will be with me till death. And this is a bit random and not really the brief that you just gave me, but I am stewing on 
this trend of vulnerability and I think I want to push back on it. I think it might be overrated. Is that something that, that's, that's wow. weird, isn't it? Wow. I know. It never comes up in conversation. But I know I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm kind of getting the words around it, but I feel like this in inverted commas vulnerability, which we're, we're all being, you know, which is being celebrated at the moment. I feel like I want to push back and, and ask whether that's exactly what we need right now. So that's, do we need to right. go there or can I just say that that's one of the yeah, interesting things absolutely. that never comes up in <laughs> I, I think that's yeah. fascinating. Is it because of the time, like do you mean that in the context of right I, now or do you mean in general, like if there wasn't a pandemic, would you still well, think I that it wasn't like, the right time? I feel, well, I, I can't separate the two because I feel like I've kind of been shaped by crisis through my experience mm-hmm. recently of drought and then gone into COVID and so I think, as a result, there's more talk about vulnerability. Like, you know, I, I'm consuming all the podcasts that everybody else is. And I think what happens is that, you know, a word trends and then you hear it a lot. And I, I just am wondering whether in certain contexts I I think it's misused. Like sometimes I think there's a, there's a lack of clarity between honesty and vulnerability and I probably lean right. towards the always valuing honesty. But people in the bush – value uh, stoicism and strength and sometimes that is absolutely what's needed for survival and maybe at a cost but I didn't really I'm not really ready to articulate exactly how I feel but it's just been I'm listening to it going I think I might think that vulnerability is over (laughs) no I really appreciate that yeah so I don't know I I think that's fascinating because I think it does deny the role for stoicism do you think it does I think I think sometimes I think I definitely no 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 I agree that in particularly in times that are not clearly delineated that there's an ending like a drought that could be six years long Mm. a vulnerability at all costs in say year one might make year two incredibly difficult for you to pull yourself back from that very vulnerable place to just cope. And I think mm, to just sometimes, mm. it, yeah, sometimes the coping mechanism that's required of you in certain situations really does not allow for vulnerability. Like there is no room for that expression. And so encouraging people to do it when maybe it's going to le- let them unravel completely. Yeah. I think there's sometimes a place where it's not the only way forward. And I also feel like Maybe, and, and maybe it's it's my inferior understanding of what people mean when they talk about this, but I sometimes think it's too navel-gazing. It's too self it's, – it's not enough about others and about service mm-hmm. to others and that kind of – like there's a great self-reliance in rural Australia that I just admire so much. I don't have it. I, it it's something I think you might only get after a lifetime here like and I I observe it in other people and I just think god that's remarkable and that in some ways they get to the self-reliance like solving their own problems and getting shit done I don't know that they would if their first instinct was to be open to vulnerability Mm. and I do think that they get get to contentment and, and and a type of happiness and a type of success without necessarily dwelling in self and in Mm. in their vulnerable side so not sure. Don't want anybody to quote me because I'm still yeah. working on it. 
But planting but the asked, seed now. So I, Report back. I raised- <laughs> <laughs> no, but I really like that. Both of my parents exactly. grew up in remote rural, not super remote, but rural communities and also sometimes get quite, not challenged, but just like fascinated by the way our generation has become very self-reflective. And like there are times when vulnerability around mental health and postnatal depression or PCOS or issues that need to be destigmatized and conversationalized, that's really important. But there's a lot of, and this is probably the thing that I am challenged by, not vulnerability in itself, but the way that things become bandwagoned, like vulnerability, authenticity, that's where I get like... Same here. That's it's it's the recipe for vulnerability. Like vulnerability equals whatever. Yeah. That recipe is what I'm challenged mm. by, not the concept yes. in itself. Yeah. Because God, but yeah, that that's what I'm stewing on. Like I just want to go. Oh, I think we might need to take a pause on this for a Do second. You know what mine is? It's it's the relationship between insert here, like vulnerability or openness or vocal of your descent also fits in that those brackets equals enlightened it's the like automatic relationship between you if you do that you're really enlightened and intelligent and superior it's like oh maybe what what if some people don't feel vulnerable like sometimes I ask what someone's an ATA is and they're like I'm not really I've not really experienced imposter syndrome and it feels abrupt because you're like what you don't have a breakdown all the time. I mean, we've associated that with enlightenment. So are you like unemotional with a hard yeah. shell? Oh my God. <laughs> Some people don't have it. I think we now understand that to be normal. It's so funny that you say that because I went on lady startups with Mia Friedman and, and one of the questions was, you know, I always ask people what their peak was or what their trough was or whatever. Anyway, my answer was I'm not prone to troughs. And and I went on, I don't know what else I said, but my sister <laughs> My sister says said to me the other day, do you think Mia's still stewing on the fact that you said you're not prone to troughs? Like that was the most insensitive thing you've ever said. And I was like, what do you mean? Like I just thought it was – it's true. I find the daily grind, like I mean I, I have challenges but it's – they're not I'm, not – I'm not somebody prone to troughs and maybe that's why this vulnerability rhetoric is not resonating quite like it should with me. Mm. But, yeah, I certainly hope I can get to enlightenment without going through the, you know, wading through the mud. You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah, you, you, maybe you're right that that's – but anyway, look, I don't, as I said, I'll, I'm still developing my consciousness <laughs> about it, but I do think we do – the bandwagging, actually maybe that's the bigger problem, that I kind of resist anything that gets kind of wrapped up in a – in a parcel and, and present it to me as fact and, and or as like this new version of truth and it's everywhere and I just want to, I don't know, I just want to kind of mute it every now and again. I still haven't seen Avatar for that exact reason because I'm like, it's a bandwagon. Don't even know what that is. <laughs> what is like it? It's a movie that won all these Oscars but because it got so bandwagony oh when it came out, I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing I'm- that. <laughs> Well, I never read The Da Vinci Code and that was when I was in an age when it was age appropriate to read it. It was so big. I'm like, no, sorry, not for me. Can't do it. I've never read, what is it? Shades of Grey as a result. And Hunger Games. Haven't watched Hunger Games because of that. We're the same. (laughs) Do you know what my big one is though about bandwagoning is controversy. Like it really grinds on me. And And it even grinds on me to even say this because by saying that I disagree with it, I'm getting on the disagreement bandwagon. But I find it very challenging (laughs) that at the moment, if you're in agreeance or you're non-confrontational, 
then it's like, oh, she's not an empowered woman because she just agrees with everything. Like, I don't like controversy. I don't like to disagree with everything that I see mm. on social media. And I, I so respect and admire and have had many people on this podcast whose voices have created meaningful change yeah. because they're willing to have a hard conversation. But I think sometimes people just want to have a... Conflict is okay. They just yeah. want to have an oppositional conversation because it's debate. And I'm like, you don't have to debate everything. Like, it's okay to just say the weather's <laughs> nice outside and not everyone to go, oh, but yes. it's, it's windy. Are you exercising your freedom of expression about the fact that it's windy? Is it really windy or is it breezy? <laughs> like, let's use a technical term. You know, there's like a debate about everything. Do you know what else? I wonder what your opinion on this. Do you change your social media profiles for various like seasonal moments or like causes? Like, so... I've got this thing that I won't ever change my profile to show my support for something, regardless of how much I believe in it, because first of all, I think it doesn't do that much, but but it, even if it did, I just don't want to miss it one day and like, oops, I forgot to change my profile and then people think I don't support it and yeah. like I miss a, a day and a trend and then I'm a naysayer and I don't want to be. So I've like avoided that completely, quite deliberately, and I wonder whether anybody else shares my fear of those like filters that come over to show your support for various world moments or causes. I think I've yeah been quite similar. And I think it's what we were talking about this before we started recording because our brands are quite similar in that the broader our appeal and the more communities we can engage, the better. So being not too strongly aligned with one thing or the other. Otherwise, you have to align with everything. I would have literally a multicolored profile picture every single day if I tried to support every cause that I care about because yes. there's so many that, yeah, I try to be quite neutral in as many things as I can be. Well, and, that's, <laughs> and that's like the outward facing, like it's a, it's a virtue signal really, like that outward facing, yes, I do support it. Like, like I'll support them in my own way, not necessarily with a filter, but it is one of those, like when everybody's filter is changing, you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> <I know. laughs> sit back. I know. It's like, are you reading into my omission <laughs> to change mine. it? Like, this is so hard. I'm making a statement either seriously. way. Yes, seriously. <laughs> it's a hard world to exist in. <laughs> I know. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a real problem. But I also, mm. I also really care about anyway. preserving the ability to have people from both sides of a discussion on the show. So I almost feel yes. kind of like sometimes a, a media outlet in that I I want to keep That's the discussion. Yeah, I need to be a Switzerland because I want to help. Yeah. I want to give a voice to so many different opinions that I never want to be too aligned to one thing or the other. Good on you. Unless, I mean, there are obviously causes I really care well, about, but if they're, if they're really like binary or oppositional, I try to just, yeah, I'm, I'm very oh. Switzerland. Do you know there's such value in that? Like I'm, I'm going to reference Mia Friedman twice in this interview, but after Trump got elected, she did this series called um, Burst My Bubble or something, Burst Mia's Bubble, and she actively, because she was so shocked that Trump got in and she was like, in my world that just couldn't have happened. Like in no way was that a foreseeable outcome. So what the hell is wrong with what I'm consuming and who I'm talking? Like I, I must be in such an echo chamber, which like, like I can see from where I live Absolutely. So many people live in that echo chamber. There's a much more diverse voice that doesn't get heard, I think. But she then went out and actively sought interviews with conservatives to try and burst her, her, her bubble. bubble. And, and I, I really enjoyed the conversations because they were challenging, but genuine, like seeking information rather than kind of criticizing. 
and I don't know whether I listened to them all, but it was it was just a good exercise because so often I think, you know, especially in your role, like as a podcast host or a media or a content creator, you often, you know, you have to choose a lane and then God, a lane is limiting, isn't it? Like let's get multiple voices in the lane mm. and, and um, bounce off each other because life is so much more interesting if we do. And also people then commit you to that lane, like you're siloed in that lane forever and you can never change your mind. And I had um, yes. Sophie Keisha on the podcast a couple yes. of weeks ago and she she was so interesting about like her her dominant theme was the ability to have a change of mind in anything because she's like, I was married with two kids and I'm now with a woman and I don't really need to label that or talk yeah. much about it. I just changed my mind. But everyone's like, oh, no, you are either now gay or bi and, like, let's yes. make sure that we know exactly where you stand. And she's like, I don't know where I stand. So why does everyone else need to decide that? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, I can never say that I'll never be with a man again. Like, it's just not a not a big deal. I'm just changing my mind as I go. And I'm like, oh, more of that. And yeah, more of politicians being allowed to change their minds. That's the, like, I love when somebody says in life, like when, when you ask a question of somebody and they say to you, I don't know. Yes. I don't know the answer to that. Like immediately I like them. Like I just think, oh God, don't tell me, you know, if you don't know. So you telling me you don't know, it makes me respect you even more. And I just wish that that carried into our decision makers because of course they don't know everything. Of course they're going to change their mind the more informed they become. And like I think on so many of our pressing issues, if they were allowed to, if we were a bit more fluid, if the media were a bit more mm. fluid, like I don't know. Anyway, they're not going to solve the problems here, but <laughs> it all starts with me stewing on <laughs> vulnerability. That was a fabulous <laughs> tangent. I enjoy that so much. <laughs> well, very last question. <laughs> What is your favourite quote if you have one? Oh, yes. Okay. I thought we were done. So this is <laughs> – I've got – I've got a – I'm thinking of a couple because you know what came to mind is you've got to drink the froth to get the beer, which is Slim Dusty, <laughs> but I don't want to end no, on No, that's a, amazing. That. <laughs> Isn't it that's good? That's such a good – you can no, totally I, use that as your quote. There's a – well, can I give you two then? Sure. Is it possible to give you two? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So you've got to drink the froth to get the beer by Slim Dusty, but also – Mary MacKillop, so it's a, it's a Catholic quote. Bear with me, everybody who already wants to roll their eyes, but it's <laughs> do everything you can with the means at your disposal and calmly leave the rest to God. And I really carry that with me, that idea that do what you can but leave the rest to whoever, you know, whoever that greater being is for you. But it means a lot to me. Yeah, I love that one. Like control what you can but there's a lot that you can't and I think we spend a good 80 to 90% of our time worrying about things, that worry isn't going to make a difference and then not reserving enough for the, the things in our life where our worrying or concern is going to make an actual difference to our lives. I love that. And I think it calls on us to do like to, so do what you can with what you've got, like have an impact, be significant. And then beyond that, you know, leave it, leave it to, to what will come and, and, for me, I think I do believe in, in, I suppose, the some things just aren't for us to decide and having a peace with that is 
is comforting for me. Absolutely. Well, Grace, oh my gosh, this was one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. I've so enjoyed it and I can't wait until the world opens up again so I can come and visit. I would love to come and visit you and Warren. And Oh my God, do you want to? Road trip? Absolutely. Stay in the bush. I would love to. You know there's an episode every week <laughs> called Yays of Our Lives, which is meant to be on the road in the neighborhood going to visit town. So I did a trip through Gippsland, no. run down to Phillip Island and just visited like <gasps> charities or small businesses and did little profiles and I haven't obviously been able to do that. It started at the start of the year intended to be on the road and hasn't really been on the road, but absolutely. Oh, my we'll come God. And, and, and do Amazing. more. Because one of the things that I heard, like as I was listening to your other episodes, I'm like, okay, where have you not been? Like in every episode you're, you just – conveniently slip in yes I was once in like that corner of <laughs> the, the world <laughs> you must be really feeling the confines of COVID you've you've done a lot in your life so much I think because travel has always been in my mind the best way for me to stretch my brain I, and I've always loved languages so that's always been like mm. a, a recurring theme the quote I like <gasps> is once your mind is stretched to new dimensions by a new experience, it can never go back to its old dimensions. And I think every time I go overseas and see a different way to live, and that's the same with even going into remote communities, seeing like we've spent a lot of time in you know the Northern Territory and just seeing different ways of considering time or family or connection. And it you can't ever unsee those things. Mm. And the more you're exposed to them, you don't have to agree with them or ever want to emulate that in your life. But travel has always been my way to open up the world. And so it has felt very difficult. I think almost because I, I never hesitated to like eat two minute noodles for three years so I could go on a trip. I almost feel yes less constrained because I don't feel like I was waiting until the perfect time and never traveled. But I also, because I'm so used to consolidating yes. myself that way, I feel a bit stagnant because I'm like, I haven't had distance from my, my own crap for so long. <laughs> mm. Question, what, what languages? Oh, so French is the main one. I did um, part of my law degree in French, which was so stupid, but also the best. I studied oh um, French, so French Japanese and Chinese until the end of uni and then Italian and Spanish wow. just from French because they're so similar. And having been to yes. Italian yes. and Spanish-speaking countries, you can pick it up quite quickly. And then I, I'm just so fascinated by languages oh that sound. every time we go somewhere, so I learn like very, very basic. So in when we went to Russia, I learned like conversational, very basic Russian and same with Arabic. I like to pull together even just like be able to say hello and thank you and understand where grammar sits, like that's part of travelling for me is figuring out the way that they. Yes. Yeah. Yes, same here. It, when I should have said that in, in play that actually weirdly like learning Spanish is one of my escapes from, from motherhood and, and it's the greatest joy if you get the chance to kind of go and have a little practice with somebody in some like that kind of those lovely connections that open up if you bother to try to speak another language in, you know, like just learning one or two words and the connection you have with somebody, if you do pick those little things up along the way, God, it's such a joy. It's one of the greatest joys in life, I think. Have you kept it, it up? I don't have five languages under my belt. Oh, neither do I. <laughs> I just can say like I can read a menu no. in a few languages basically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I can order margarita, pizza in most <laughs> 
crucial no. skill. <laughs> yeah, I, do you know what? At the daycare the other day, at my local daycare, there's a lady from Columbia there and I've only just discovered it. And I st- every day I just stalk her to try and like say hello and practice. But no, I'm pretty terrible these days. <laughs> it's funny though. I'm sure it comes back to you as soon as you like see someone and then it all starts rushing back when you start talking. It's fascinating. The brain is so interesting. Like I can't remember it's, my name or my age so half fun. the time. But <laughs> but you can remember a song from 1999. Yeah. <laughs> word or for like word. all of the phone numbers <laughs> before like my primary school phone number list. I, yes. I know them all off by heart, but I don't know my partner's number now. It's like, what? why? I don't know what I did exactly. yesterday. Like it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, well, Grace, thank you so much for this wonderful chat. I'm so excited to see the pitching competition come to life and everything that Buy From The Bush continues to do. Thank you for having me. It's been so fun. I loved Buy From The Bush before I knew much about Grace herself, but I love it even more now. What a literally life-changing movement for so many started by just one determined woman in her kitchen. Loss of direction really can lead to discovering your yay, so never forget you can find purpose in places you would never have expected. If you enjoy please support grace and shower her with love from the neighborhood sharing the episode and tagging buy from the bush or hit up the marketplace yourself to support our outback business owners especially as the festive season approaches if you're listening in and have a business idea you might qualify for the big break pitching competition so the details for that are in the bio too grace goes into a lot more practical detail about community building and particularly focuses on social media in our paypal business bootcamp webinar that i mentioned from a few weeks ago the full video is now available for you to re-watch and i'll pop that link in the show notes too i hope you're all having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay